Hello and welcome to episode 252 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Ian, how's it going? It's Tuesday, a bit unusual for us, but yeah, here we are. It's an unusual day, and this is going to be a slightly unusual podcast, at least the first part. Dear listeners, if you'll allow me some license here, I'm going to take the first part of the podcast to remember my father who passed away this week. And so we're recording on Tuesday because I'm about to go get on a plane and fly to New York and deal with all of the things that need to be dealt with there where my father lived. So after we record, I'm getting on a plane and and heading there. But what I did want to talk about today was my dad is a huge, huge part of why I'm sitting in this chair speaking into this microphone. And he is the one who got me into aviation, not because he was into aviation specifically, but when I was five, we moved into a house at the end of the runway at O'Hare. And so it was there. And I grew up with planes coming over the house at all hours and being in the backyard playing ball with dad. You know, we would stop and look at the planes coming over at a few hundred feet and marvel at those what were then extremely loud planes. And I learned how to tell time because we would count how long it was in between the aircraft. I learned how to identify the aircraft, you know, just looking at things and being interested in stuff. And he encouraged that so very much. And he's originally from New York and from the Brighton Beach area. So not far from JFK. So whenever I would go and visit him, you know, we would sit out on the beach and and watch the planes coming into JFK. And he was also a tech marketing pioneer, I should say. He started working with AOL when AOL was developing their channels. If you're old enough and listening to the podcast, even A, know what AOL is. Actually, it wasn't AOL then. It was America Online. And know what a channel was on America Online. I'm sorry. But also, he started working on the internet when it was very young and was always interested in things. And one of the things that popped into my head today was Microsoft Terra Server. Jason, do you remember that? I don't. I'm, I'm very familiar with AOL keyword airline, but yeah. uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> not so much that. So Microsoft Terra Server was like the precursor to Google Maps. It was the first time satellite imagery had been put on the internet writ large and available just by going to a website. And we were fascinated by it. It was all black and white imagery, at least at first. And we would just spend a ton of time. And airports were always a big thing because they were so big and they stood out on the satellite imagery and you, you could look at them and it was just so much fun to do. And some of the best travel memories I have as a kid or with my dad, we would fly to New York all the time on you know, United 727s. And there's a DC-10 thrown in there for good measure, not to New York, but I remember being on a DC-10 with him. And I wanted to tell this one story. I don't want to go on for too long, but I wanted to tell this one story. You can go on for as as long as you (laughs) want. This podcast episode is just purely for story time in the beginning. And for those wondering, yes, I did offer Ian the day off, the week off to do whatever he wanted to do and not do this. But we think of this podcast, for us at least, I think of it as therapy almost. It absolutely is. I hope that a lot of people listening use it that way as well as, as enjoying roughly an hour of things that mean a lot to them each week. And maybe you learn something along the way. But the one story about my dad that I wanted to tell, because I know a lot of people that listen to the podcast, listen to it while traveling, while flying. My dad 
did a lot of traveling when he worked for a travel newsletter publishing company back when they published like actual paper newsletters way back in the mid 90s. And the thing you have to know about my dad is he kind of looks like if you know who Dennis Farina is, he was detective on NYPD Blue amongst other things. Think across between like Dennis Farina and Danny DeVito, not a tall guy, squat, balding. Cops thought he was a bad guy. Bad guys thought he was a cop because he, he wore this leather jacket for like Great 30 for years. Cover. And he looked like he belonged, I'm not really sure where, but he looked like he belonged somewhere where you would need a leather jacket. And so he's flying to London and he's walking through the airport. This is at O'Hare. And he, he's flying to London and he's in the terminal and these two gentlemen come up to him and introduce themselves as United States customs officers. Plain clothes guys, you know, they show their badges and they introduce themselves and he goes, how's it going? And they go, sir, do you have more than $10,000 on your person or in your luggage? And my dad just starts dying. He just starts cracking up and laughing in their faces. And that was maybe not the correct move because they invited him to follow them into a secure screening area where he was thoroughly investigated. He did not have more than $10,000 on him, but he was the kind of guy where cops would look at him and go, like, that guy looks fishy. And then people who were fishy would go, that guy looks like a cop. And it happened more times than I can count where it would go one way or the other, I guess. And that just like kind of the encapsulation of my dad and his travels who got me into this, kind of got me interested, not because he was super interested, but, but because he kind of planted that seed and then just encouraged me at every step of the way. So dad, I hope wherever you are now, you are carrying more than $10,000 on your person and they let you on the plane. That's a great story. For some background there, if you happen to be flying in or out of the US and you have over $10,000, literally $10,000 and one cent, you need to declare it, I think for tax purposes. And if you don't, they will take that money from you. They will take the entire sum of it. And this does happen occasionally. I have also been asked that, and I maybe didn't laugh at the officials asking me that, but I always would think inside my head, like, I wish. (laughs) Right? That would be great. I have never come close to that. I usually walk around with $8 in my wallet, but that would be great. Your dad definitely probably should have picked another avenue for that That, response, but what what a story. He's like, I just started cracking up and they didn't appreciate that. I mean, if you don't know that rule and someone just randomly asks you, hey, Ian, are you carrying more than $10,000? Like, It's just a very odd question if you don't know why you shouldn't be doing that. So good. But as they say, on with the show because there's there's actually a lot of stuff to talk about this week in the shortened period. I mean, we're day early, but we're still like a day. It's like a day and a half because this is Tuesday morning. Let's dive in because the FAA issued its revised airworthiness directive on the 18th of January. So the day after we stopped recording last week, the FAA issued its revised airworthiness directive, which is a verbatim copy of the emergency airworthiness directive. But this one allows for public comment, which Jason and I are thoroughly going to enjoy reading. And it reintroduces the four to eight hour or up to eight hours worth of work, a cost of $12,000 on airline. So the one of the things that we are learning through the airworthiness directive is basically there's no rework involved to the aircraft, or at least the FAA is saying, you know, here's our airworthiness directive. There's no rework involved to the aircraft. It's just making sure that the bolts are on and the bolts are tight. Yes, and that inspection will cost about $12,000. 
And so we thought to ourselves, oh, okay, with the airworthiness directive out, that means that the FAA has approved a method of compliance for the airlines to perform the inspections and to begin work. Because the day before, the FAA had announced that the 40 preliminary inspections, the 20 United Aircraft, 20 Alaska Aircraft, had been completed. So we thought, okay, preliminary inspections are done. We're reviewing the data. Oh, look, here comes the revised airworthiness directive, which is not an EAD anymore. It's not an emergency airworthiness directive. It's just a straight up airworthiness directive. That means mean things are moving forward. Well, here we are on Tuesday, the 23rd of January, and there's no method of compliance yet. No, we were wrong. Anyone who would justifiably read that and think, oh, this is probably good news. Airlines are going to start conducting the inspections and putting the aircraft back in service, which is harder to tell because the public is not actually able to see the method of compliance that the airlines have to do, basically the guidelines and the instructions for the inspections. Those are, those are classified. We can't see those. <laughs> but a day later, somebody at one of the affected airlines, let's just say someone who I, I trust and, and to provide me accurate information said, well, hold on. This actually isn't what you think it is. This is just a formalization of the prior emergency airworthiness directive. Nothing has actually changed. The FAA and Boeing are still reviewing the data from those 40 aircraft, and they still have yet to propose revisions to the multi-operator memorandum. It is kind of a mopey operator memorandum. They are definitely mopey at this point, although we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, but that still has not happened. We're recording early in the morning, January 23rd. By Friday, this could all be changed. But we thought with the airworthiness directive out that we would see sooner rather than later inspections beginning and the aircraft starting to be you know, returned to service. Has not happened, unfortunately. Nothing publicly, at least, has moved forward at this point. Airlines are still waiting, preparing. They have torn down the aircraft that they do need to inspect, at least the area around the door plug. They are waiting for the go-ahead, but that, that still has not happened. At this point, United has just confirmed that it has removed or at least canceled the MAX 9 from its schedule through the end of January. So I guess it's possible if right now they're given the go-ahead to do the inspection, it takes eight hours, they could put these aircraft back into service as extra segments, but United is not happy at the moment. Not a huge vote of confidence right there. No, I guess we could just skip forward to that right now. Sure. We'll come back to some other implications. Yeah. But United hosted or will host its fourth quarter 2023 earnings report. And of course, the MAX 9 is going to have a great impact on the next quarter, which we're in currently in right now. And they, they expect actually maybe they won't turn profit because of this. But some very let's call it pointed commentary coming from a major customer of Boeing. Excuse me. Uh, you don't typically see such strong commentary coming from an airline. But United CEO Scott Kirby is calling this the straw that broke the camel's back. And another quote from CFO of United says, it's a great aircraft, but we cannot count on it. This is not great. Really, I don't think we've ever seen in the modern day an airline outright call an aircraft that it is a customer of just something we can't count on. And not only are they a customer of the MAX 9, but they have the 10 on order as well. And they're basically discounting that that is going to be in their fleet when they were expecting it. 
Yes. So United had big plans for the MAX-10. That was supposed to be its new domestic premium aircraft replacing the 757, and it would have an actual full business class on board like the 757s do. Those plans are so in question now that United is actually having to draw up, at least on paper, alternate plans of what would we do? do? What do we do if the MAX-10 can never be delivered or can't be delivered for such a long time that we need to do something because our 757s are 30 years old and they, they need to go. None of those are slated for retirement this year, nor any of the 767s, but United has got to start thinking about a future where maybe the MAX-10 isn't a part of its fleet plan, which is just wild. I mean, I made the kind of tongue-in-cheek comment on Twitter this morning, but kind of after reading these these statements, you know, my, my thing is Scott Kirby calling up Airbus and saying, "Hey, can you open a third final assembly line in Mobile? We'll take A three twenty one LRs as many as you can give us as fast as you can give them." Yeah, well, United has I think fifty A three twenty one Neo XLRs. That's a mouthful on order with delivery starting this year. Hypothetically, again, Airbus not exactly knocking delivery dates out of the park, just like Boeing, but they do also have a ton of. A350s on order that nobody expects them to ever take, but maybe they convert them to 321 Neos. I don't know. There's a lot of questions, a lot of opportunity for Airbus to gain what Boeing is losing here, at least with United. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about market share in the past few weeks as both Boeing and Airbus announced their final year-end tallies of orders and deliveries. And the comment about that Airbus or that an analyst made, I forget exactly which analyst was, but a few years ago, how they saw Airbus going to 60% market share. And Randy Tinseth at the time, who was Boeing's chief I forget his exact title, but basically chief airplane salesperson said that was ridiculous. And sure enough, here we are with Airbus at, at for, for an Airbody, 60% market share. It's a duopoly, but at some point, and certainly this is you know not where airlines want to be. I mean, United doesn't want to be sitting here going, we can't count on the airplanes that we ordered. We can't trust that we're going to be able to operate them you know, when we say they're going to operate them. And, th- and that's an incredibly difficult position to be in. Well, that has also, we're long past that point. Reading CNBC article this morning from uh, Leslie Josephs, who's, who's been on the show before, she points out that in August 2018, Scott Kirby, the then United's president, announced the 100 order for the 73 MAX 10. Those were supposed to be flying in 2020. We're, we're four years down the road, and we still don't know when or if those aircraft will be certified entering service at United. So forget that you can't count on them being delivered on time. We're almost half a decade beyond that original point. That's crazy. The other thing here is that the inspection regime has expanded kind of to the 737-900ER. So the FAA announced, and this is a fun thing, like 1030 at night on a Sunday, sent out a safety alert for operators. So a a SAFO is a recommended, it's not an airworthiness directive, they don't have to do this, but it's recommended that airlines operating 737-900ERs, which is the generational precursor to the 737-9 MAX, those operators, which in the United States include Alaska Airlines with 79 aircraft, Delta with 170, and United with 136, so not a small number of aircraft, 
those operators inspect their mid-cabin exit door plugs because the FAA says that, well, let's back up a second. Airlines had already started doing this because it's the exact same door. It's the exact same door plug as on the, the 900ER as is on the 9 Max. So airlines had already started inspecting those. And the FAA says that some operators have conducted additional inspections on the 737-900ER mid-exit door plugs and, quote, have noted findings with bolts during the maintenance inspections. Man, if that isn't the most ambiguous, <laughs> heavy lifting phrase, helpful sentence the FAA could possibly put out, it is absolutely meaningless. They have, have noted, noted findings. findings with bolts. That could mean literally anything from the bolts Look, were there and they were tight to we can't find the airplane, so we assume the bolts are missing. I don't know. It's a ridiculous statement, but you have to read between the lines there. I don't think they would be saying anything here if airlines hadn't reported something. But no, we don't know. No. They are not answering. They are not clarifying what they meant there. I spoke to someone at Boeing yesterday, off record, and again, there's no clarification of what, if anything, was discovered here. So we can only assume that nothing was discovered. I think if airlines said, hey, we're looking at the 900ER and there's some missing or, or loose bolts, I think the FAA would probably do something at this point, say something, at least I hope. But we truly don't know at this point. Yeah. I mean, what the SAFO says to me is that there was something that wasn't exactly right. Not that the bolts were missing, like because all of these, the 737-900ERs have been through heavy checks. And I think most of them have been through at least one D-check. So not that the bolts are missing necessarily, but perhaps they're not as tight as they should be. Or maybe the cotter pin was missing or, or something like that. Not where there was a risk of the aircraft experiencing a similar event to the Alaska 7379, but where something wasn't exactly as it should have been. That's what the SAFO says to me. Yeah. And we still don't know the range of any of the results from the inspections that United and Alaska have done to see what's the range of dates these aircraft were produced that have this issue. Is it something they can identify as every MAX 9 off the line before September 5th, 2022? is fine. The ones after that are the ones we're having an issue with. And I, I think right, that would right. be interesting to know because we ran the numbers, we looked at the dates, and there is overlap of the 737-900ER and MAX-9 production. I think there were about two years where they were mixed on the assembly line. So there are actually some 300ERs of the NG family that are newer than the oldest MAX-9. So these are essentially the same aircraft as far as the door plug is concerned, FAA says it's an identical door plug design. So it stands to reason that if there was an issue with assembly on the MAX, it is very likely that that same assembly issue is present on the NG. But we have no information to prove that, or no airline has said anything to that degree. So we sit and we wait, and we just have to live with the fact that we know that they have noted findings. They have noted findings. You know who is still... I would say incredibly enthusiastic about taking some MAX aircraft. Uh, not United. We know that for not sure. Not United. India's Akasa Air. Not only are they saying, yes, give us what we've already ordered, but they want more. And not a few more, a lot more. Jason, how many more? 150? That's a lot of airplanes. That is. So this was an interesting case where 
Acosta Air announced that it was ordering 150 more Max amid all of this chaos at Boeing with the grounding of the Max 9. It's not great timing, but there is some detail to it that it is not as if they ordered it right now and announced it right now for no reason. They actually finalized this order back in December of last year and held on to that announcement, I believe, until one of the major air shows in India. So it's not as if they pounced on an opportunity right now and said, oh, Boeing's in trouble. Let's turn the screws and get a really good deal. The deal was already done last year. So they're probably not getting any discounts or anything because the paperwork's already signed. I it's don't just, know. I'd be going back and asking for a, pri- I don't uh, a price I'm adjustment. I'm sure on they would be asking, but the deal was already finalized. I don't know if you could go back and adjust that. You but can it always is not go as, back. Yeah, you can. But it is not as if they signed it amid the grounding right, right. and decided, well, we're going to get a great deal. Well, no, the deal's already done. But yeah. a, a rare bit of good news during the grounding. And th- this is something we saw before. I think when the original max grounding was occurring, IAG ordered like a buttload of maxes oh, yeah. at the time. Yeah. So it is good for Boeing to have some sort of vote of confidence during adverse impacts to its manufacturing capability. But yeah, seemingly came out of nowhere, but it was an unidentified order that just became identified. Yeah, they announced it during the Wings air show at Hyderabad, where Air India also debuted its A350 for the first time to the public. And just sticking with India real quick, slipping this in here, they have now begun passenger service with their first A350. Remember, this is not the first Air India cabined A350, but this is their first aircraft. I believe it's the Aeroflot. Was it originally for Aeroflot that their cabin was for? So it's not the brand new grandiose Air India A350 cabin, but it is their first A350. I mean, it's still pretty great. Oh, it's great. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. Back before Aeroflot was restricted from taking any new aircraft because of the sanctions against Russia. The Aeroflot actually had a fantastic cabin on its A350s. I think they snuck a few out before things went sideways, and Turkish somehow ended up with a Turkle few of them flot. as well. Yes. Turkleflot. But now Air India has a few as well. And these are very nice aircraft. And I, I don't think anyone will mind being on these because oh, they no, 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 no. I'm just, very I'm just nice. You know, saying that that it, I'm still looking forward to seeing what looks like an incredible cabin. Oh yeah, on their A350s. And this is in addition to Air India taking the X Delta Triple Sevens or the 200 LRs, which are also fantastic aircraft. So yeah, Air India is. I would say it's multiple faces of Air India right now. You've got the old Air India fleet, which you do not want to be on because they are gross and they are disgusting and they are being refurbished eventually, very soon. But then there's the other Air India with all these aircraft that they've accumulated from other airlines like the Aeroflot A350s and the Delta 777s. Those are the ones you want to be on because they are super nice. Book carefully if you're booking an Air (laughs) India flight. Let's just say that. They're headed in the right direction, but they're not quite there yet. Yes. Who knows if these two are headed in the right direction? Last week, we talked about the ruling by the federal judge saying that Spirit and JetBlue could not continue with their merger agreement. Spirit and JetBlue have appealed that ruling or have filed to appeal that ruling. And they did it in such an exciting way that reading between the lines, it seems like they're really hoping that this appeal is just 
quickly dismissed yeah, because they said, I'm gonna, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, please read the thing. I'm going to read the release in its entirety. JetBlue Airways Corporation <laughs> and Spirit Airlines Incorporated today reported that they have filed a notice of appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit consistent with the requirements of the merger agreement. Okay. There's no editorialization there. They're not saying we will vigorously fight this because we believe the court ruled in error or anything. It's just we're going to do it because the lawyers tell us we have to do it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ian, I have breaking news. Yes. Give it to me. Breaking news. We just one topic away from having a really nice segue. But WestJet just announced today the acquisition of five brand new Boeing 737 MAX 8 to its fleet for delivery in 2025. So it is not just one Indian airline announcing 737 MAX orders right now. We have a Canadian airline in the mix. There you go. Yeah. Let's talk about the Cessna 208 that landed on the highway this week, because that was quite the event. A Southern Airways Express Cessna 208 shortly, and I mean shortly after takeoff from Washington Dulles Airport, landed on the parkway basically next to the airport. They hooked a left turn and landed. It did not get far, did not make their way away from the airport in any way, shape, or form, but quickly came down on the parkway, landed safely, two crew, five passengers, everyone walked away. And as always, a fantastic job by the crew, getting the aircraft down safely and communicating. My favorite thing about this is one of the pilots is you know calling Dulles Tower saying, hey, you know, mayday, mayday, mayday. We're on the ground. Controller goes, you're on the ground. Where are you on the ground? And they go, we're by, between the Wendy's and the Aldi. Oh, yeah. I, I know oh, okay. exactly where that is. Yeah. yeah and, it's, and they were close enough that the controller could turn around in the tower and go, oh, okay, I see you. Yeah. I mean, if you're from that area, you know exactly where this is. This is right on the perimeter of Dulles. I've probably been here myself, at least passing through, maybe on a bus going to the Udvar Aussie Center. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But this is more complicated than you would think. This is a very built-up area around Dulles, or it has become a very built-up area. And they would have to contend with all sorts of things like very tall, high-voltage, high-tension power lines and traffic lights and roadway signs and all sorts of things. So it's not as easy as identifying the Loudoun County Parkway and saying, I'm going to set down there. No, there's a lot of crap in the way on that road. And thankfully, they were able to get it on the ground without hitting anything. I think they may have ended up leaning against the guardrail, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. I mean, kind of what's incredible to me is they, they came down along the parkway runs south what are my directions here? It kind of jogs around the airport perimeter where it turns from south to kind of southwest a little bit before turning back due south. And they kind of took the turn right around Yardley Ridge Drive. There's kind of a sweeping left turn if you're headed in the southbound direction. And they did a nice job setting it down right off the approach. I mean, so the parkway that they landed on is the border to the airport proper. I mean, there's like a forested area off the airport property, but it's basically the border of the airport. So they did not make it far. Yeah. That airport is massive. If you've ever seen Die Hard 2, you know you how know. big it you is. You know how big you, it you is. Know you know already. You don't have to go. But there's a massive forested area around that airport. So thankfully, they were able to get beyond that because it would have been a very, very different story. A, a, a but different, we, we, different story. Yeah. yeah. We don't know what happened, why it happened, how it happened, but the NTSB is investigating. Yeah. And as soon as they know We'll relay that. 
The NTSB is also investigating the air return of an Atlas Air 747-8F to Miami earlier this week. Atlas Flight 95 was flying, scheduled to fly from Miami to San Juan. They departed. Shortly after departure, the number two engine, so the inboard left engine, began emitting sparks and flames. They returned to the airport very quickly. And upon landing, it was discovered that there was a softball size hole in the top of the number two engine. So Mm. something came out of it. That's interesting. The is investigating and we'll hopefully find out what came out of it. Yeah. If you find, I don't know, an engine fan blade somewhere around the airport, let the NTSB know. Be good to understand what came out of that particular engine. Sticking with cargo, this is becoming an interesting theme because we've got certain airlines saying what CargoJet is saying and saying, forget it. We don't want these airplanes. And then there are other cargo airlines saying, yeah, no, no, keep them coming. So CargoJet has said they were contracted for 777 converted freighters. And now they're saying, yeah, no, nah, never mind. Yeah. They ordered a few of these conversions, I believe, of 200 LRs and some 300 LRs in the aftermath of COVID. 300 ERs. 300 ERs, yes. Where the big twin. The big twin, where freight operations during COVID and in the years after was just an exploding segment of the market. But that has cooled down tremendously to the point where cargo jet says, "Ah, maybe we don't want any of these anymore. And and to quote, they say it is a result of slowing global air cargo demand. So I don't know what the status of some of these aircraft are. I think some of them are in process of being converted or already have, and they will figure out how to place those elsewhere. But they might have some trouble doing that, especially with other airlines like FedEx, I think has a big chunk of its fleet parked right now because there just isn't demand for it. So we'll keep on that one because I'm sure it'll swing back the other way eventually. To close out the show, I thought we could talk a little bit about some interesting things that happened over the weekend. Storm, I don't know when we started naming storms that weren't hurricanes, but apparently that's a thing now. So I'm just leaning into it. I'm just going to go with it. So Storm Isha, Isha hit Ireland and the UK over the weekend. Super strong winds. I think there were winds over 99 miles an hour, which I guess would make it winds of 100 miles an hour in some points. (laughs) And that led to a number of interesting diversions because the nearby airports filled up rather quickly, said we're closed for diversions, so you're going to have to go further afield. So there was a Ryanair flight from Lanzarote to Dublin that diverted to Bordeaux. There was one, which is just a kind of a really egregious example, a Ryanair flight from Copenhagen to Dublin, flew to Dublin, did a couple of misapproaches, diverted to Manchester. Four hours later, took off from Manchester, circled near Dublin, waiting for the weather to clear. That wasn't going to work out. They tried an approach at Belfast. That didn't work out for them. So they diverted not back to Manchester, but this time they went to Liverpool. And three hours after they landed at Liverpool, we got a tweet from someone on the plane said, we're still on the plane. So I, to this day, don't know if they ever made it off the plane. Yeah, that's not something you want to be involved in, especially if you're flying on Ryanair. But it happens. I mean, we saw recently in New York when one of our snowstorms came through, I think there was a flight from somewhere down south going to LaGuardia. And they said, ah, we can't do it. We're going to divert to Bradley up in Connecticut. And a little while later, they took off again to go to, I think it was LaGuardia, maybe Newark and said, ah, 
crap, we can't do it again. They went back to Bradley. So they diverted twice. Yep. It happens. It can happen to any airline. It's just when the weather doesn't cooperate and it's worse than expected, you, you got to go somewhere. I'm not picking on Ryanair here. I mean, oh, no. there, there were easy it's jet just, diversions. There were, all all, all, you know, KLM, all sorts of diversions. So definitely not just a Ryanair thing. But that, I think, was the most egregious. But good job to everybody for handling that as best they could. And, and I hope those passengers eventually got to Dublin. Well, uh, we or maybe know. they're back in Copenhagen. But we'll never know. This has been episode 252 of AvTalk. Thank you all so much for making it to the end of the episode and indulging me a little bit at the beginning. We do appreciate you listening and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. And we'll be back next week with a regular, regular episode on a regular day and hopefully just talking about airplanes. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Urbanowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.